It is a common practice among Christians, and it happens here as well, to use biblical names for your children. And so we have John and Judah, Aaron, Nathan, Ruth, Lydia, Sarah, all here at the church, but I have yet to meet a little Melchizedek. Who is this strange person? And why does their preacher, the one who is writing this sermon letter to these to this ancient church why does he call on Melchizedek what does Melchizedek have to do with Jesus we're returning in some ways to a point that the author started making way back in chapter 4 chapter 4 verse 14 he began talking about the ways in which Jesus was better than the Levitical priesthood of Old Testament Israel But then he wanted to keep going with that. He wanted to show how Jesus' priesthood came from what he called the order of Melchizedek. And so he referenced that two times in chapter 5 before he stopped because he was a little frustrated with his congregation because they had become dull of hearing. He didn't think that they were going to be able to track with him and follow with him as he made this argument from the Old Testament and showed how it pointed forward to Jesus. And he actually warned them in chapter 6, be careful that you don't fall away. Then he comforts them at the end of chapter 6 by fixing their hope on Jesus, who is the anchor of their soul. And now finally, here in chapter 7, he's ready to go back to that point that he started making way back in chapter 4. And he begins with the story of Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 1, is a reference back to Genesis chapter 14. And that's the only other place besides Psalm 110, which our author quotes several times in our text. It's the only other place where we read about Melchizedek. And what we read in Genesis chapter 14 is the story of the first battle of the Bible, the first war. And it was called the Battle of the Nine Kings. And what happened was there in the land of Canaan, there was a sort of kind of reshuffling of international priorities. There was an attempt by some kings to throw off their vassal status. And so some kings rebelled against other kings, and you might remember that Abraham's nephew Lot was caught up in the middle of it, and he and his family were taken prisoners of war. And so Abraham gathered together a private army And he went after Lot. And not only did he rescue Lot, but he also defeated the other kings, bringing back with him innumerable riches and people that he had rescued from the warfare. And then, chapter 7, verse 1 says that when Abraham came back, he met Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Our preacher goes on to give us a little bit more information about Melchizedek information that perhaps we could have discovered in Genesis 14, but he makes it clear for us. He says that this Melchizedek was a king. He was the king of Salem. Many people believe that Salem is actually an ancient name 
for the city that we know now as Jerusalem, that he was the king over that site during that time of Abraham's life. Verse 2 also says that he is a king in two ways. First, he is the king of this city called Salem, but even his very name mentions his kingship, the king of righteousness. Melchizedek is a mushing together of two words, Malach and Sadak. And those two words are king of righteousness. Now, I want you to remember that as our preacher is going through this, he's talking to people who would have known this story. And they would have begun scratching their heads thinking, king of righteousness, king of peace. Huh, that sounds a lot like Jesus. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to show them how Melchizedek points forward to Jesus. Verse 3 is very interesting. It says that Melchizedek had no father and no mother, no genealogies, no beginning of days, no end of life. A lot of people, after they've read this down through church history, have wondered if perhaps Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. Was Melchizedek someone that, that essentially Jesus, before he's born of Mary, did he take on human flesh and appear to Abraham as Melchizedek? I don't think so. And part of the reason that I don't think so Two things. Number one, in verse 3, we say that he resembled the Son of God, not that he was the Son of God. And the other thing that I think is really the, the intentional part here is that this Melchizedek was a recognized historical figure in the land of Canaan during that time. Normally, when you see a theophany or a Christophany, a, an appearance of the second person of Christ, it's a, it's a momentary appearing. Think of the three men before God destroys Sodom who meet Abraham before the oaks of Mamre. They don't then go and exist and take up a house and start a business and then become you know, someone who is well known. They appear for a moment to engage with someone that is important for the moving forward of redemptive history and then they're gone. This person was someone that is important in that time frame. The idea that we're getting at here, though, is the fact that he didn't have a father or a mother or a genealogy. It's referencing back to the book of Genesis and how important genealogies were in the book of Genesis. Melchizedek seems to just kind of drop out of nowhere, even though the book of Genesis, part of the way that you can make your way through the book of Genesis is by looking for those lists of genealogies. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Terah. These are the, when you see those lists, you know that you're tracing kind of biblical history through those lists. And the point here is that he has no genealogy, which is very unusual in a book filled with genealogies. In verse 4 of chapter 7, the preacher returns to the story of Genesis 14, and he reminds us that not only did Melchizedek bless Abraham, but Abraham tithed the spoils of his victory to, those, to this priest. And this seems like it's kind of a, an odd ancient Near Eastern custom that you might just be thinking, okay, that's, that's interesting. But there's a point to this, and there's a reason why the preacher is bringing this out. By receiving a blessing from Melchizedek, 
And by giving Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he had won on the battlefield, Abraham is recognizing Melchizedek as his superior. Who's the superior in the mind of ancient Jews? It's Abraham. He's the father of the faithful. He's the one through whom the promise is going to come. And yet what the preacher is showing us here is that even Abraham recognized in his own day that there was somebody else that was greater than him. And then our preacher takes another step. And he says that means that the Levitical priesthood that came from Abraham is inferior to the Melchizedek priesthood. And the Melchizedek priesthood, he appeals to Psalm 110, that's the one that Jesus occupies, which means that Jesus is a greater priest than the Levites. Now remember what the point of the book is. Remember what our preacher is trying to do. We have an ancient Christian church filled with converts from Judaism. And they're tempted to go back. They're tempted to go back to the religion that they had left behind. And so what our preacher is trying to do is to show them that if they go back, they're rejecting something better. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. And he doesn't want them to make this tragic decision to go back. He wants to show them how Jesus is superior. I just want to pause here for a second. At this point, I think it's perfectly understandable for all of us to go, well, okay. <laughs> like, I'm not tempted to do that. I'm not tempted to go back to Judaism. Or I, I don't even know that we have any converts from Judaism with us. And frankly, even modern Judaism today, they don't have priests, do they? They don't have a temple. They don't have sacrifices. The entire religious tradition has changed. So Eric, I mean, maybe we could just skip chapter 7. I mean, can't we go on and maybe spend some more time in other chapters where we seem to rush through things? Does this have any bearing on me? Does this have anything to do with me? It does. It does. Look at verse 25. We begin with the word consequently. If you see a word like that, one of the things that you need to know is that this is a summary statement. Here's the point. In summary, here's what I've been arguing for. Here's the thing that I'm driving at. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That phrase, draw near to God, appears many times through the book of Hebrews. And every time you read that phrase, I want you to think of salvation. He is able to save us. We who are looking for salvation, we who are trusting in Christ, we who are looking in faith to Jesus, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Guess whose job it is to help us 
draw near to God. A priest. A priest. And you still need a priest. And I need a priest. And this ancient church needed a priest. And the problem that they were facing with, or the problem that they were facing was that they had left behind a system where there was a whole catalog of priests. They knew that a priest could begin serving when he was 25, and he had to stop when he was 50. I'm be 49 this year. That's a pretty good retirement age, I think. They were the ones who mediated the sacrifices, who offered the sacrifices. They were the ones who prayed in the temple. They were the ones who officiated the feast days. They were the ones who taught the law. If you wanted to draw near to God, you needed a priest. But now they're without those priests. And they're looking around, and they've got pastors, and they've got elders and deacons, and, you know, they're kind of losers. And so they're trying to figure out, is this better? Where's the temple? Where's the incense? Where are the, 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 the beautiful robes and the headdress? Where are the feasts that would gather us together several times a year in Jerusalem when we would sing the Psalms of Ascent as we walked into the city? And now we're like huddled in small rooms, persecuted and forgotten, laughed at, mocked. Is this any better than what we left behind? You see, the people in this congregation are contemplating a terrible trade. They're thinking that they're going to give up on Jesus and go back to the Levitical priesthood. And what our pastor is trying to get across to them is that priesthood, it was temporary. That priesthood was inferior. And that priesthood even ultimately was unable to really allow people to draw near to God. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that the people of Israel couldn't even go into the temple. Oh, sure, they could go into the areas around the temple, but the temple itself was reserved for the priests. And even the most holy part of the temple, where God's Spirit dwelt, that was only reserved for the high priest once a year. So there was always a little bit of distance between God and the people, and that was partly so that the people themselves weren't judged and immediately struck down because of their ongoing uh, sinfulness. This is why our preacher makes this point in verse 11. If the Levitical priesthood could have made the people of God perfect... Why was there the need for another priest? Well, actually there was a need. Because the Levites themselves weren't perfect. We read in this chapter that they would have to make sacrifices for themselves before they could make sacrifices for the people. They were prevented by death from continuing on in their ministry. In fact, the only thing that the law could do was temporarily put some distance between the worshiper and the judgment against his sin. Every day, sacrifices would roll up the temple mount. Every day, the black smoke from those animals would ascend into the sky. Every day, blood would flow through the streets of Jerusalem because every day the people sinned. People never stopped sinning. The work of the priests was never done. 
preacher says in verse 18, something had to change. The system was weak. The system was useless. The system needed to change. Enter Jesus, a new priest, a better priest, not on the basis of his heritage, not on the basis of his family, because he came from Judah, not the tribe of Levi, but instead on the basis of his indestructible life. Why is Jesus qualified to be a priest of God? Because of his resurrection. Because he overcame death. And this is why this story matters to you. You need a priest. You still need a priest to draw near to God. And like these ancient Christians, we are all tempted to trade Jesus for another kind of priest. The Levitical priesthood would assure the ancient Jews that they were right with God. You'd bring them a sacrifice, they'd cut it up, light it on fire, and then look at you and say, okay, you're good. Who's telling you today? that you're good? Who's telling you that God is pleased with you? Who's telling you that you are safe? Ernest Becker is a cultural anthropologist who wrote the Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death. He grew up as an observant Jew, but later became an agnostic, rejecting belief in God. And he said that even after he quit believing in God, he found his soul still searching for acceptance and validation from someone. In his book, The Denial of Death, he writes this, we want to be rid of our faults. We want to be rid of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know that our existence hasn't been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Who can give it to us? Friends, who can take away your faults? Who can take away that feeling of nothingness? Who can assure you that your existence isn't in vain? Who can justify you? Who can redeem you? See, you and I were constantly on the lookout for a priest to do these things, and our preacher says, look up! Look up and see your great high priest at the right hand of the majesty on high making intercession for you. Now, folks, all the priests that we're going to look for, all the priests that we're going to trust in, all the priests that we're going to say, can you save me? They're all going to fail us. They're all going to look and say, well, I can do my part, but here's your part. See, unlike every other priest that we might seek out, only Jesus, verse 25, is able to save to the uttermost. The great Puritan theologian John Owen said that Christ will not bring about part of of our salvation and leave what remains to ourselves or to others. Whatever belongs to our entire complete salvation, he is able to effect it. Friends, if you descend to the depths of your heart, 
even down to the crevices that you're not all that aware of, even there, Jesus' salvation will reach you. This whole book is helping this congregation see how the Old Covenant looked forward to Jesus Christ. How the Old Covenant was types and shadows of the reality and the fulfillment that was yet to come. And Melchizedek is a type of Jesus Christ. He's showing us the kind of priest that we need. Something that goes beyond what Aaron's sons could provide. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system, it's a shadow of the reality to come when God Himself would become the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that was all fulfilled on the day that Jesus died when the veil of the temple was ripped in two when God, as it were, said, y'all come. But Eric, these folks had to navigate a transition from one covenant to another. And they got this preacher telling them that this covenant is better and it's going to last forever, but how do we know? How do we know that this covenant is going to last forever? How do we know that this covenant is any better than the old one? Look at verse 21. This one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The fact that God swears an oath means that he will certainly do what he has promised. That he stakes his whole character and his credibility on doing it. What about God's other promises that don't have an oath attached to them? It's not that those are any less important or that God is any less faithful. But when he swears an oath, he wants you and I to know that that promise is of crucial and central importance to his purposes. Why is it crucial? Why is it of central importance that Jesus be our priest? Because he, verse 22 says, is the guarantor of a better covenant. To be a guarantor, to be a surety, means that you would step in to pay someone else's debt if they failed to pay it. And what the preacher is saying is you are absolutely covered. There's no way now that God's promises won't come true for you. Jesus is the guarantee that the promise God made to Adam and Eve for a serpent head crusher to be born one day, to set them free from their slavery to the serpent, that one's going to come. And Jesus stands up and says, I guarantee it. Jesus is the guarantee that the promise to Abraham that from him all the nations of the world would be blessed. Jesus stands up and says, I guarantee it. Jesus is the guarantee of the promise that God made to Moses that his people would be a nation and a kingdom of priests. 
He's the guarantee of the promise that God made to King David that someone would rule on his throne forever. And Jesus stands up and says, I guarantee it. And Friends, when I am tempted to despair, and when you and I, like many of these people in this early church, when we are tempted to just throw it all away, to say, I don't even know if this is worth believing anymore, when we are being confronted by our own waywardness, by our disinterest in the things of Christ, by our lax approach to so much of life, and when the accusations of the evil one come against us and they say, you know, you've got no guarantee that you're going to make it until the end. Jesus stands up and he says, I guarantee it. Let's pray. Father, so much in our world seems fluid, seems subject to forces beyond our control. We seem tossed like a small ship on a big ocean. We need a guarantee. We need a guarantee that you are faithful to your promises. We need a guarantee that when we call out to you, Jesus hears us, we need a guarantee that the way to your throne is now open. Father, fix our eyes on Jesus, our perfect priest forever, who is our guarantee. It's in his name we pray. Amen.